renowning Scott, I think. Um, he is a former um, intelligence officer with the Marines, right? Not, um, I think- Not I might the Navy, said, not the Navy. <laughs> I might've said the Navy. And so I apologize uh, for that. And Scott corrected me. Uh, and also a former UN weapons inspector and a very sought after um, analyst right now. There's so much going on, Scott, how are you doing? I'm doing fine, thank you, yourself. Yeah, I'm doing pretty good. Um, so let's <laughs> let's get your blood pressure up here. Um, Representative Jason Crow from Colorado, who's uh, I guess a member of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, is uh, talking about sending F-16s to Ukraine so they can fight those uh, wascally Russians. And um, you know, it seems like every time there's bipartisan consensus on something like this, Scott, I, I get really worried. I get really worried. You got Republicans and Democrats going on TV saying, yes, we need to send uh, F-16s. And, you know, each week I'm thinking maybe somebody will raise their hand and go, hey, maybe we should start a peace process. You know, a guy like Matt Gates, he's got a resolution out there, I believe. I'm not sure if it's if it's on Ukraine, but I'm I'm thinking it might be on the spending end of things. I mean, you can't really question the spending. You can't question, um, you know, where that money might be going, where those um, arms might be, like whose hands they might actually be falling into. So I was wondering about your take on the the, the push for the F-16s. And it seems as though um, there are a couple of interesting narratives that are starting to develop. The Russia-China narrative, which you know, I've always said on this particular platform that it seems like the left really doesn't like Russia for the most part, and the right tends to not like China. So this could be the best of all worlds for the military industrial complex, really for the rest of our lifetimes, Scott. I'm in my 50s, and I think you're not too much older than me, but how much time do we have left, and how much war is there to have? You know, it seems like the endless war it's going to continue for the foreseeable future. So I know I gave you a lot there to work with. So uh, what are your thoughts? Well, let me just start with the F-16s. You know, um, old obese men with, um, you know, uh, heart problems and on oxygen uh, probably shouldn't be talking about how they're going to conquer Everest. So Jason Crow and People of his ilk, they can speak all they want about providing F-16s to Ukraine, but the impossible is the impossible. Right. Um, it's just, it's not going to happen. I'm not worried about it. I'm not fearful of it. Um, and like almost everything we do with Ukraine, if we were to go forward with it, it would only make Ukraine weaker uh, because it raises expectations artificially. And then the end result is... Um, Everything is destroyed. More Ukrainians die. Russia gains even more. So, I mean, it's it's political showmanship. That's all it is. It's people posturing. Once again, Americans using Ukraine to serve their own personal interests. Jason Crow probably couldn't find Ukraine on a map. And if he could, he probably couldn't tell you the geopolitical importance of various regions, the history, why this is an issue. Um, I, I, I think what he's doing is he's taking... Uh, an issue that um, is is has been simplified in the American people. If you support Ukraine, give them all the weapons they need. They're asking for. Therefore, give them the F-16, and everything will be okay. Everything won't be okay. Ukraine's in a lot of trouble right now. Um, F-16s won't change the uh, the ultimate um, you know algorithm that's in play here and that is the depletion of ukraine's ammunition resources regarding 155 millimeter artillery shells uh which yeah. is the shell used by all of this fancy uh western artillery that's been provided they run out of ammunition sometime this summer there's nothing nato can do to change that equation and when you run out of ammunition it's game set match it's over we couldn't even get an f-16 in the air over ukraine by this summer so i mean again Fat old men shouldn't talk about conquering Everest. And in this case, Crow is a fat old man and Everest is the F-16. So it's, it's, it's just silly to even talk about it. Um, China and Russia, it, this, is, uh, this is different. I, I personally think that China um, is in the process, you know, Russia's invasion of, uh, of, of Ukraine, and, and it was, even though they called it a special military operation, it was um, 
an invasion. Russia has articulated a, uh, uh, what I believe is a cognizable uh, defense of this under Article 51. China takes a little bit of exception to it. Uh, they have a broader definition of sovereignty. And uh, China has always had difficulty uh, sp supporting the Russian actions. They, they haven't gone against Russia, but they haven't saddled right upside next to Russia and say, we're with you 100% on this one. But that's changing because um, there's a growing recognition that this conflict has gone beyond simply a Russian-Ukrainian spat into an existential um, struggle between Russia and the collective West. Um, China's looking at the words and actions of the collective West, not only against Russia, but against China, and recognizing there before the grace of God go us. Um, the, the Western intentions regarding China are quite clear. Um, and I, I think China is recognizing that, uh, you know, as Russia had done with uh, diplomacy, embracing the Minsk Accords, embracing the diplomatic outcome, embracing the negotiated into the conflict, only to find out that the West never had any intentions of, um, of doing that. China is, uh, I think, beginning to recognize that um, the West's promise of um, you know, mutual economic prosperity um, is a false hope that the West has no intention of allowing China to prosper economically, that the West will conspire to do everything necessary to respect and retard China's economic growth and China's economic viability going forward. Um, and I think China is going to opt out of that narrative and uh, opt into the uh, we're with Russia uh, narrative. And um, I, I think that's the direction we're heading, which means that, um, you know, the West I, I could see the West doubling down on um, militarism if they were to win the Ukrainian conflict, but they're going <laughs> to lose the Ukrainian conflict and they're going to lose it decisively. They're going to lose it in a manner which um, sees them uh, deplete uh, critical military stores. Um, and I don't know how after going into deficit spending, you suddenly think you're going to go on a Vegas trip. Uh, which is what a war with China would constitute. It's basically a trip to Las Vegas. You're going to put everything on the table, huge gamble. And generally, Vegas trips with uh, the idea of get-rich-quick schemes in mind go badly for the people who go on them. Um, so I think China understands that the best way to deter uh, Western uh, venturism in the Pacific is to ensure a decisive Russian victory in, in Europe. And I think that's the direction China is heading. Yeah, I mean, our foreign policy is is what brought these two countries together, though, right, uh, Scott? Isn't isn't the, the only reason we're here is because uh, the United States wouldn't negotiate. Uh, there are deals that were uh, trying to be brokered, I believe, last March, from what I understand, and um, you know, the UK and the US just kind of said, nope, nope, we're not going to do that. And now here we are with Russia and China, and. People on both sides of the aisle, I've noticed, are now panicking because this is the worst case scenario, but yet they're the ones that created this mess, no? It's not just Russia, China, it's Russia, China, and Iran. All yeah. three are coming together, um, which is the trifecta of terror from, from the American perspective. Um, the, the worst three possibilities, um, and yet they're coming together you know, the Iranians had traditionally had a, a Western-oriented focus on terms of develop, development and political engagement. And because of um, the, the, the American-led West's uh, actions against Iran, they've, they've compelled Iran to pivot east. And it's not just towards Russia, where Iran is taking unprecedented steps in terms of uh, military collaboration and political cooperation, but also China. Um, where Iran is talking about, you know, <clears throat> I mean, Iran, Iran is joining the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. They're becoming uh, talking about becoming members of BRICS, um, you know, and, and they they've even made uh, talk about, um, you know, having a partnership with the um, SCTO, the uh, you know, the Russian sort of post Cold War military uh, arrangement of former, um, you know, Soviet republics. Um, <clears throat> This is a like a never never land for Iran. It's a whole new uncharted territory of economic expansion and geopolitical relevance. Uh, having been blocked by the West, Iran is now moving into this trans-Eurasian economic union 
where there is tremendous opportunity in Uzbekistan, uh, Kazakhstan, Tajikistan, Kyrgyz, all the stands are just basically lining up saying we're ready for business. China is supportive of this. Um, the new Silk Road is a reality. And, um, you know, between Russia, China and Iran, uh, we are talking about creating an economic engine that is um, not only can outcompete the West, but is in, uh, untouchable by the West. Uh, it won't have any of the traditional connectivity issues that allow the West to uh, impose sanctions and, uh, and influence. It'll be independent of the rules-based international order. Mm -hmm. um, this is empowering. Um, and, and, you know, Russia's in that direction too. I, you know, a lot of people don't listen to what Vladimir Putin says. I always encourage people to do so. It's a, uh, it's a fool's errand if you don't. Um, and, you know, his, his February 21st speech to the, <clears throat> Uh, Russian Federal Assembly was quite uh, enlightening if you just took the time to listen to what he said. Yep. And pretty much what he said is that Russia is uh, has become self-sufficient economically. You know, the West is talking about how they can sanction Russia, how they can weaken Russia, how they can do it. And Russia is saying, no, you failed. You see, we've actually divorced ourselves from you. We are working on a new economic reality based upon um, fiscal um, theories that are independent of the need for cheap Western investment. That was what drove the Russian engine before the need for, you know, cheap Western money to come into Russia and develop the economy, develop the economy way that that money that was made fled Russia. Um, that day's over. Russia is investing in itself and the money is being reinvested and Russia's economy is growing, strengthening, uh, despite the fact of sanctions and a war. Um, and that kind of economic model, when transferred to a European economic union, a trans-Eurasian, I'm sorry, not European, a trans-Eurasian economic union of self-sufficiency, meaning they don't need Europe. They don't need the United States. They don't need any of this problem. They don't need to eat your poison. They can build this thing that is self sustaining um that's the death knell of uh, america's um fiscal hegemony over the world it's the end of the uh, petrodollar's dominance uh, and, and things of that nature and that's the direction we're heading it's a nightmare scenario for the west they just they, they can't comprehend it because they've never allowed themselves to comprehend it because of hubris and arrogance that postulates that uh in the end we will win they will fail well no we are failing they are winning and uh we're not prepared for defeat. So this is going to be a very interesting decade to come. Yeah. And it's funny that you uh, mentioned sanctions there because the White House just announced uh, new sanctions against Russia, 200 individuals and entities, as they put it, um, along with, of course, $2 billion worth of support uh, going again to Ukraine. And I I really, uh, are I'm beginning to question you know, the, the sanity of American citizens at this point who watch this stuff and say, okay, we just had this thing that happened in uh, East uh, Palestine. Okay, forget about what I talk about down here in Florida where we're still recovering from a, cat a category five hurricane. And just, just from the, you know, looking at the dollars and cents issues, Scott, and, and we're just giving, you know, $2 billion away. I, I've heard, I talked to, Fiorella the other day from RT News, which I know is a, you know, a dangerous thing to do. But I spoke to her about this, about what it would cost to say fix, you know, homelessness or help uh, veterans in need who, you know, have been forgotten about. And the numbers, you know, we've already, you know, gone five, six, seven times more um, sending money to Ukraine than what it would cost to really, truly help people in this country. I don't care what side of the political aisle you're on you could say oh, it's wasteful spending over here meanwhile like you say we're you know 31 trillion dollars or whatever it is uh and climbing as far as the national debt goes um but why are we why do we continue to think the sanctions are going to do anything or is this just um politics is this you know tough guy biden yes more sanctions that's going to do it you know we're we're here forever basically we're here to the end we're never going to stop I mean, when, 
I can ask you this question too. When will this stop, Scott? Is it when Russia has the decisive victory or will they find a new way to just keep this going? Well, um, first of all, understand that sanctions is not a policy. Sanctions is the lack of policy. Sanctions is what you do when you don't have a policy. Sanctions are designed to make you feel good about doing nothing. Um, <clears throat> so that, that's what sanctions are. Um, and in, inevitably, sanctions, because they do fail uh, and because they get you to, to commit down a, uh, you know, a course of action, they inevitably lead to conflict. They don't lead to peaceful resolution. So sanctions are, are literally the dumbest policy in the world. They don't work. They never have worked. They never will work, especially against um, you know, nations like, for instance, Iraq didn't work. Yeah. Iran didn't work. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Russia not working. China won't work. India. Nope. I mean, we just go on and on and on sanctions. Don't Turkey. Nope. Didn't work. They don't work. But what they do is they get politicians to commit to an issue without the cost. Meaning instead of saying, we're going to go to war against on this, this is such a fundamental issue for America. We're going to war. It's a warlike action without the immediate consequences. Um, but it's, it's actually, it's a sign of um, the, a failure of um, intellect, a failure of imagination, because what they, what they don't understand is the vast majority of the times when you enter this sanctions-based uh, approach, um, because it won't succeed, you end up doubling down on stupid, doubling down on stupid, doubling down on stupid until you've gone so far down the path of confrontation that eventually the only policy left is confrontation. Um, I think Americans should be grateful that Russia is going to win this war and win this war quickly. At least they should pray for it. I mean, we don't know the outcome yet. It hasn't happened. And anybody who, uh, who thinks they know what's going to happen in uh, all details is a fool. Um, but I think the writing appears to be on the wall. Um, we're getting to the point where I would feel confident betting on Russia in Vegas. Um, and, and not feel that I would lose my bet. Um, and the, the, the closer we can get to a decisive Russian victory, the less likelihood there is for a confrontation because Russia's victory will defeat the trajectory. Um, the longer this conflict goes, the more likelihood of American-Russian direct con confrontation. But if Russia can nip this in the bud now, bam, win, and confront us with failure before we've gone too far down that line, um, that would be a good thing for America uh, because we don't need a war with Russia. We don't want a war with Russia. Unfortunately, the American people haven't, haven't quite come to that recognition yet because they continue to cheer loudly for F-16s to Ukraine. They continue to believe that HIMARS and M-777s and uh, M-1 Abrams uh, can turn the tide of the battle. Um, they continue to be ignorant about the horrific reality of the Ukrainian government and its ties to uh, Bandera and neo-Nazi ideology. Um, and so you take all this ignorance that defines the American approach towards Ukraine and you allow it to manifest itself over an extended timeline, that ignorance will lead to the inevitability of conflict. The sooner Russia can nip this in the bud, the better. Um, and likewise, the sooner the West can be confronted with the failure of its approach towards Russia, uh, maybe the sooner they'll recognize that a similar approach towards China will lead to a similar result, and they might look for alternatives rather than the sanctions-based confrontation that leads to the availability of military conflict. Um, if we're hoping on the West to come to its senses on its own volition, though, that's misplaced hope. Um, this is going to require a decisive Russian victory, and um, that means that you know, unfortunately, we're putting our uh, our future in the hands of Russia. Wow. And I don't like that at all uh, because yeah, yeah. I don't like to cede that kind of sovereign control over national fate um, into, you know, the, the, the hands of others and pray that they're benevolent, pray that they're looking out for our best interests as well as their best interests. That's a very rare thing to occur. Yeah. Well. You touch on something I think that's important. And um, last time I had you on, you got really fired up uh, when we were talking about libertarians and the uh, the rage against the war machine. 
rally, which uh, you were invited to, but then I guess you were uninvited to. Is that correct? I was invited, uninvited, reinvited, disinvited. Yeah. All right. So that's quite a process there. Um, what I've been hearing, because I got a lot of feedback from that appearance, was that because you are kind of cheerleading for Russia, essentially saying, yeah, I hope they win. And they win, they went in illegally, but yet you're kind of looking the other way that they went in and they shouldn't have gone in. And, you know, even China is, you were mentioning, you know, they, they probably shouldn't have went in and so forth. And most people say that probably it would have been great if they didn't have to go in, but yet um, they believe, you know, based on, on laws that international law that they should have gone in. Um, but yet, you know, we're all kind of, waiting to see what happens here, Scott. And you're you're saying on this particular broadcast here that we hope Russia wins because it'll get a lot worse if they don't win. And so what would be like a cutoff point? Are they trying to just kind of, you know, what was the the, the term rope-a-dope Muhammad Ali used to use where, you know, just everyone would get tired after a while, you know, and you hit them, you hit body blows for a long time and they, and they just get tired and they're, they throw their hands up and, you know, by the eighth or ninth round, they get knocked out or they, they win, you know, a technical knockout or whatever. Is that, is that what the foreign policy establishment is going for? Or are they even that smart to even think that way? Well, I mean, they're willing to fight to the last Ukrainian, but, you know, again, I, I take umbrage at the, uh, the one-sided uh, analysis of the libertarian party. Um, and I'll just say straight up, uh, the ignorance that's shown in, in that statement is beyond comprehension. It's as if NATO expansion never occurred. It's as if the 2014 coup d'etat, U.S.-backed coup d'etat in Kiev never occurred. It's as if uh, the policy of um, the Obama administration of regime change targeting Vladimir Putin never occurred. It's as if Minsk never occurred. It's as if the Russian uh, diplomatic outreach is from 2014 to 2022 never occurred. It's as if Russia didn't see an early termination of this conflict through a peace process that could have manifested itself in a peace agreement in Istanbul on 1 April never occurred. It's as if the libertarians don't have a fucking mind is what it is. Okay. This is the most ignorant thing on the world. And I say that for anybody who's watching. Okay. If your position is solely premised on the notion that Russia's intervention is a violation of Ukrainian sovereignty. You don't know what you're talking about. This isn't an issue of journalistic balance. This isn't about saying, well, they said, now we this said, no, this is a fundamental issue of right and wrong. This is about who's right, who's wrong. And when people say, well, Scott, you're pro-Russian because you're saying they're right. No, I'm pro-right. And it just so happens that Russia is right. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, the, if you check my history, um, I have not been pro-Russian my entire life. I'm not anti-Russian. I'm pro-fact. And there are occasions where Russia's actions have insulted my sensibilities, but not on Ukraine, not on Ukraine. And, you know, this is just, it's it's frustrating to hear people say they want to have, you know, they're looking for a peaceful solution. Hey, newsflash, people, if you don't define a problem properly, you can't come up with a solution. So if you define this conflict as a Russian violation of Ukrainian sovereignty, you will never come up with a solution because you've not identified the problem. You're solving nothing. You must recognize this conflict for what it is, an ongoing decades-long provocation by the collective West to weaken Russia, to use conflict in Ukraine as a vehicle to undermine Russia, to, as Kenneth Rogoff said in Davos, to achieve regime change in Russia. He said it through the vehicle of economic sanctions, but there are people who seek to weaken Russia militarily by prolonging the conflict in Ukraine, through the last Ukrainian, by the way, so that the Russian public loses faith in the military to achieve an outcome, therefore loses faith in Vladimir Putin, therefore conspires to remove Vladimir from Putin. That's what it's all about, ladies and gentlemen. This is a policy of regime change. And if you don't see that, you're fine. Yeah. Scott, what would be the best thing for the Ukrainian people? Not not the, you know, the oligarchs and all the, the corrupt people and the Azov uh, group and all of that. 
but the rank and file, the citizens, what, like what, what policy, what, what would be the best thing to pursue in order to, to, you know, mitigate uh, more casualties? Cause I'm assuming I, I don't have numbers or anything. And I don't know if you have any data that I could get access to, but I guess my point is a lot of people are dying and I'm assuming a lot of civilians are dying. You're not hearing reports because if you hear a report that, you know, Russia is doing well or a lot of civilians and God forbid, I, I don't like hearing reports that civilians are dying. But I mean, what course of action like today, if you're President Scott Ritter, right? <laughs> and there's nobody above you who's pulling the puppet strings or telling you, no, no, you can't do that, Scott. Um, what is the first thing you do? You call for a ceasefire? I mean, what what is it? Well, ceasefire to what end? I mean, ceasefires are stupid, frankly speaking. All right. There's a reason why there's violence. There's violence because there's good guys and there's bad guys. And the war comes to a conclusion when the good guys kill the bad guys. Uh, would a ceasefire have been a good idea after Battle of Bulge in 1944-45 in that difficult winter? Let's call it a ceasefire, guys, because damn it, the war just got inconvenient. Ceasefire. No, Hitler's on the ropes. You take him out. There's no ceasefire right now. Why? Because the modern day Hitler, Zelensky, is on the ropes. And his modern day fascist regime, the Bandera worshiping government of Kiev, is on the ropes. Yeah. Um, you want the best solution for the Ukrainian people right now? Kill Zelensky. Wow. Kill Zelensky. The people of Ukraine rise up and instead of dying in Bakhmut, kill Zelensky. Remove him from power. Surround the headquarters of um, the right sector. Surround Svoboda Party. And do to them that which they did to the trade union. Burn them out. Man, we're talking about your existential survival, Ukraine. Because if you continue down this path, this Zelensky-driven path to your collective doom, you will all die. You know, the good news so far is that the number of Ukrainian civilian deaths is uh, minimized. And what I mean by that is we're looking at under 10,000. If it's over 10,000, it's no more than 12,000. It's still a big number. I'm, I'm not trying to say no, but people don't need to understand that generally speaking, in large-scale ground combat of this nature in a European environment, the death ratio is one-to-one. -one. Yeah. <laughs> For every combatant that dies, there should be a civilian that dies. Um, right. I'll, I'll point out that uh, the, the, the liberation of Normandy, you know, that wonderful cross-channel attack by American forces, British forces, French forces, Canadian forces, killed 60,000 French citizens. <clears throat> 60,000 French citizens died being liberated. Wow. So now we're in a conflict where Russia has probably lost upwards of 45,000 dead. The Ukrainians probably lost upwards of more than 300,000 dead. So we could comfortably say that uh, 350,000 combatants have lost their lives and you've only lost maximum 12,000 civilians. So the Ukrainian people have gotten a big pass on this. And the reason why they've gotten a pass is because of Russia and the way Russia's approached this war. So the Ukrainian people should understand that the Russians are not your enemy. Your enemy are those who make you suffer. And that is the Zelensky government. The majority of Ukrainian civilian casualties have occurred because Ukrainian troops have opted to use Ukrainian civilian population centers uh, and, and as human shields. And I'm not making it up. The Washington Post uh, and um, the uh, Amnesty International uh, Humanitarian Watch or you know, Human Rights Watch, they've all come out and said the same thing. Ukrainians are using the civilian population as a human shield. That is a war crime. Um, that's why civilians are dying in the numbers they are. Have Russians killed civilians? Yes. Are some of those civilian deaths um, unavoidable? Yes. Were some avoidable? Most likely. Uh, could you charge a Russian soldier with a war crime? Maybe. Maybe there's examples of Russian excessiveness. But nature, to charge someone with a war crime, you have to have clear intent to commit a war crime. And the moment you move into the fog of war, where you have territorial units and unmarked civilian clothes, throwing Molotov cocktails, pulling artillery strikes, etc. Um, and the Russians come in and therefore have a right under international law to assume ill intent on the part of a male of military age in civilian clothes behaving in a manner that could constitute a potential threat because just a block before, a similar male like that threw a Molotov cocktail 
on an armored personnel carrier burning 12 guys to death. Another male with a cell phone called in artillery strikes. They hit a command post, killing 40 guys. And now you come in and there's a guy, military aide, civilian clothes, acting in a way that doesn't constitute running for fear of his life. And you say, take him out. Now, was he an innocent man? If the answer is yes, so sad, too bad, shouldn't have been where you are. Um, it's called collateral damage. Um, but this notion that Russia is committing wide-scale, broad-spectrum war crimes is, frankly speaking, absurd. The people who are committing war crimes in this conflict are the Ukrainians. We have documented evidence of them slaughtering Russian prisoners of war, a war crime. We have documented evidence suggesting that they are using chemical weapons against Russians, a war crime. And we now have documented evidence without it cannot be questioned that they use humans, uh, civilians, as a human shield, a war crime. The war criminals reside in Kiev. So it's about time that the Ukrainian people understand that your government has basically sold you out to the West, to the collective West. Um, your defense minister acknowledges that Ukraine has become little more than the, the meat producing part of a proxy conflict between the collective West and Russia. They provide the equipment, Ukraine provides the meat, and it goes into the meat grinder. Is that really the fate that you want, Ukraine? Is that what you're hoping to get from this? So, the um, and I, I don't know if you just had a nuclear blast or not, but your, <laughs> your camera just uh, faded out there. I didn't know. Maybe the Russians got a little too mad and, 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 and preempted you with a nuke. But the happens, bottom line is... every time I talk to you, Scott. That's, I mean, the, the, the bottom line is... Plugs, you know? Yeah. The bottom line is that... Um, the biggest threat to Ukraine right now is Zelensky. He's the biggest threat. And uh, the quickest way out of this is to for the Ukrainian people to remove him from the equation, replace him with somebody who will seek an immediate cessation of hostilities, but there will be a cessation on Russia's terms. And Russia's terms can no longer be ignored or poo-pooed. I know there's people in the West who say, now we don't want to give Russian credit. I'm sorry. Uh, the territories that Russia has annexed are going to be permanent part of Russia. There's no peace agreement about that. There's growing recognition of the West that that is, in fact, the case. Uh, it is the demilitarization. All this NATO equipment can no longer be part of Ukraine. It must either be destroyed or turned over to the Russians or returned to their to the, to the NATO provider. Uh, but the Ukrainian military is over. It will either die or surrender. That's it. And denazification. The Zelensky regime is history. It's no longer there. Um, and there's evident, there's reason to believe that the Russians are actively preparing for a period of two to three years of military government in Ukraine, during which time there will be extensive denazification taking place. If you're a member of the Svoboda Party right sector, run for your lives because the Russians will catch you and they will hold you to account for the crimes that you've committed, political and otherwise. So, um, and this is a reality. This is the fate of Ukraine. The only question now is what will constitute Ukraine? Will Ukraine be um, you know, inclusive of Odessa. Will Ukraine be inclusive of Kharkov? Um, this is what the Ukrainian people have to think about right now, because you've lost Saporizhia, you've lost Kherson, you've lost the Donbass, you've lost Crimea, you're never good. And uh, the question is, how much more do you want to lose? Because if you continue down this path with Zelensky, you're going to lose a lot more. And, um, and you have to decide if that's what you want. If you say uh, giving your life for Ukraine is a noble cause, then give your life for Ukraine, but not against, not by fighting the Russians. Give your life by taking down the dictator that's currently destroying your nation. Yeah. Um, Scott, do you think uh, both France and Germany are getting a little tired of this? Because apparently Macron and Schultz uh, supposedly contacted um, Zelensky and said, hey, you really need to start uh, thinking about peace talks. I mean, especially Germany. Uh, this winter, I'm sure, has been rough on the German citizens. And uh, Schultz, who's uh, no brain, in fact, uh, Peter Lavelle over at RT likes to call him uh, Sergeant Schultz. I've watched that show a few times and I find it humorous when he does that. But um, you think maybe, maybe, um, you know, you might, you might start to see some defections and then, you know, without, you know, remember, the United States was egging on Germany, come on, you got to hurry up with these tanks and we'll do tanks if you do tanks or if we do tanks, maybe you should do them. And the tanks are kind of irrelevant as you've pointed out on this show. But I mean, maybe uh, cooler heads might prevail. Have you heard any of these talks? Well, I mean, right now, I think the biggest issue in the West is how to manage the inevitable inevitability of a Russian victory. Um, uh, and the, the best way to mitigate that is to get Ukraine to commit to a termination of the conflict as soon as possible, uh, because then the West can save face by saying, 
only our intervention allowed Ukraine to survive. Yeah. Uh, you know, nobody could have survived against the, you know, the horrible hordes of the Russians coming out from the east, those new Mongol invaders and all that stuff. Um, I mean, so that's, you know, that's the myth. Uh, the longer this conflict goes on, though, the less likely is that Russia is going to want to give the West that out. Um, and the more likely is that Russia is going to insist on um, a, a, you know, unconditional surrender that will be humiliating not only for the Ukrainians involved, but also for the, for the West. So, and, and, and unfortunately for the West, um, you know, politicians are loath to admit that they were wrong. I mean, the wise course of action for Macron and Schultz to get together and they go, we bet on the wrong horse. Um, yeah. You know, yeah. And, uh, guys, this war's over. We're done. We're finished. It's, it's over. We can't save it. We're not going to prolong the suffering and agony of the Ukrainian people any longer. Uh, the United States, I'm sorry, we're, we're out. Uh, Ukraine, we'd like to help you, uh, but you've got to be willing to stop this nonsense. And Zelensky, um, Miami's looking pretty good right now. You might want to head there because your days are done. We're finished with you. That would be the smart move because then Germany and France would be in a leadership position going forward. Um, you know, be able to have a, a meaningful play. Although the Russians would be loath to trust them because we can bet first principles. Uh, it was, after all, Germany and France that promised Russia that the Minsk Accords were a viable, um, you know, direction towards peace. So can Russia and can France and Germany ever be trusted again? But, you know, the other thing that's happening too is that, um, I mean, Nord Stream. Yeah. Uh, it's gaining traction in Germany, no matter how much the Biden administration wants to, you know, hear no evil, see no evil, say no evil in terms of Nord Stream, even though we have a president. Um, and it's great. I, I love it. You know, normally they just focus on um, Biden's face when he gives it, you know, the tough, the, 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 the senile tough guy, the determined look of we're going to shut it down. But what they don't ever show you is Schultz. His, the, the, the look of abject terror on his face as Biden says this. And he knows he can't say anything because he's he's a German leader that has no cojones. Um, so you know the, 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 you know they 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 don't show that, but the German people are starting to wake up. It seems uh, you know they the, the Ukrainians tried a, a little trick to put a destroyed Russian T seventy two tank on a pedestal outside the Bundestag, um, and uh, instead it's become a rallying point for fifty thousand Germans who cover it with flowers and uh, pro Russian sympathies. Uh, they don't want a war with Russia. They, they, they're they against the policy. Tens of thousands of people surrounded Ramstein Air Base, where they, of course, have the Ukrainian contact group meetings and uh, are saying the same thing. America, get out. Um, I think there's a growing recognition that America attacked Germany, that America betrayed Germany. America's not a friend to Germany. And uh, the German people are starting to wake up. And um, whether this is sustainable has yet to be seen. But um, I think we're seeing the beginning of, a, of an awakening in Germany. Uh, that's based on collective outrage over what the United States did to them. Uh, again, if you're a journalist out there um, and your name isn't Seymour Hirsch, because we know where he stands, he's done the right thing. But if you're a journalist out there and you even hint that this wasn't done by the United States, you're not a journalist. Okay, there is no balance here. There is no he said, she said. The data is overwhelming that the United States attacked Germany. And if you even hint, that not only maybe the United States didn't do it, but now you buy into the American narrative, oh, it was Russia that did it. You're not a journalist, you're a Western propagandist. You may call yourself a journalist, but you're not. The evidence is clear. Biden's confession on February, you cannot walk away from that. You cannot walk away from Victoria Newland's confession and her glee in the outcome. You cannot walk away from Tony Blinken rubbing his hands greedily as he talks about great opportunities that come from this. You can't walk away from Balt Ops 22, where we have the means to carry this out taking place. You can't walk away from Seymour Hersh's reporting. If you don't like his reporting, then take it apart. But don't sit there and, and buy into the Western there. Oh, he's just an old man making stuff. Cy Hersh doesn't make stuff up. I can personally tell you that. I don't know his sources, but I am a good friend of his. And I will tell you right now that my two decades of friendship lead me to strongly believe that side doesn't make shit up. Excuse my language, stuff up. Right. It's right. reports based upon. And, and here's the other thing I'd like to point out to people. Well, he's not telling us his source. Really? So side <laughs> her should become James Risen. Such a really poor reporter that his source gets arrested and goes to jail. 
Cy Hirsch should become Judith Miller, you know, who went to jail and, and ultimately confessed and report. But Cy Hirsch should put people in jail? Is that what you want? Is that the game you want? Cy Hirsch has never put a single person in jail. Why? Because of the way he writes. You will never find his source by reverse engineering his story. I reverse engineer stories for a living. I can go through most uh, articles out there and say, aha, that's the source, that's the source, that's the source. But about a 90% um, you know, success rate. Um, with Cy Hirsch, you ain't never going to find the source because he's never going to give you a hint of where the source came from. He will protect it. So all the people who are out there are frustrated. I don't know Cy's source. You're not meant to know his source. That's why he's the greatest investigative journalist that has ever lived. He uncovers the stories nobody wants uncovered, and he reports it in a way that you will never find out who his source is. And um, that's good. So all the, I think what we have right out here is, one, we have journalists who have basically bought into, they've sold their souls out for um, you know, the mainstream narrative. They're, they're, they're tools of the establishment, tools of government, because that's where they get their sources of information from. Read their stories. Read their story and see where they get their sources from. And if their sources come solely from industry or government, there's a problem there because there's no independent thinking going on. Journalism used to include some analysis, but apparently analysis now is a is a you know is a threat to the, the balance of journalism. But it's not balanced because when was the last time journalists report reported responsibly on both the West and Russian uh, sides of the story? Is there anybody in the West that reports about Russia? When you take a look, for instance, on the February 21st um, speech given by Vladimir Putin, um, all you hear is it's bitter. He's a bitter man. He's an angry man. He's a frustrated man. He's this man. He's that man. He's that. The last thing you hear is, oh, my God, you know, the guy is actually laying out, you know, a, a blueprint. Uh, he's telling us what's going on inside Russia. You know, Ray McGovern, uh, a CIA, former CIA analyst, Soviet uh, analyst who I have the greatest respect for, um, straight up said, you know, Criminology is not is not intelligence work. You know, the basically the way we used to do it in the you know after Brezhnev died, or even the latter days of Brezhnev. Every May May ninth Victory Day, uh, who's standing? Brezhnev. How has it changed? Oh my God! This man moved three steps more to the right. This guy's looking down at his watch. What does it mean? And what the Politburo is doing? That's garbage. But that's what they resorted to because they wouldn't do what. Real intelligence analysts do. There was something called the Foreign Broadcast Information Service, FBIS, run by the CIA, that would on a daily basis publish the speeches given by Soviet officials, newspaper articles that covered it. And they laid out there in great detail. I used to read that stuff vociferously. I mean, I just I still have the old copies just because I, I miss it so much. It was wonderful source. But these politicized people would say, that's Russian pro that's Soviet propaganda. You can't read that. That's Soviet propaganda. So they're now left looking for which side of the hand you know, is his watch on the left side or the right side? Um, is he wearing a scarf that's this way or that? That's not intelligence. That's that's voodoo. That's guesswork. That's stupidity. Yet people would actually write reports based on that and ignore the statements made by Soviet officials, which history has shown been 100% correct. Soviet officials never lied to the Soviet people about these fundamental issues. When they reported about the economy, they reported facts as they believed it to be true. Yeah. Uh, but their job wasn't to propagandize. They had other tools for that. But the fact of the matter is when they gave a speech, it was an honest reflection of where they stood on an issue. And that should have been the basis of the report. Vladimir Putin gave us an honest reflection of where he stood and where Russia stood on critical issues. But people won't listen to that because it's Russian propaganda. So if you're a journalist, and you're not reporting responsibly about this speech, you're not a journalist. You're a Western propagandist. If your initial reaction to anything coming out of Russia is, well, that's Russian propaganda, you're not a journalist. A journalist has to dig deep into it the same way that you claim you dig deep into the Western stories. But journalists don't dig deep. They are stenographers. They repeat exactly that comes. Why? Because that's their customer base. Their customer base isn't <laughs> customer base is the people that pays their salaries. So they have to appease the industry because the industry pays their salaries. They have to appease the governments because the government gives them the information that allows them to write the pieces that reflect government policy, to promote, to become an echo chamber. That's the status of modern journalism in America today. Ask the New York Times, read the New York Times, read the Washington Post. It's very rare that you get an in-depth analysis of 
what's going on inside Russia. God forbid you do it. Yeah. Like, God forbid I actually go and listen to what they say and the report back on it. And because I become a Russian propagandist. I become a tool of Putin. It's stupid. And people say, Scott, why do you put so much emphasis on Russia? Because I don't need to put more emphasis on the West. It's already being done. What's lacking in the balance here is a Russian perspective. And so because they have failed to do that, I decided to do it. Now I'm called a Russian propagandist. I'm called somebody who, you know, has, has sold out to the Russians. No, I sell out to the truth. And anybody who doubts that, look at my position on Iraq. All right. Yeah. Did you think I sold out to Saddam? Is that what you thought? That's what they said. No, I sold out to the truth. Right. And I'll right. tell you what, too. I'm pretty damn smart. I'm not the smartest guy out there, but I'm pretty damn smart. So when I commit to something, it's not because of a gut reaction. Oh, my God, this feels good in my gut. I'm going to commit to it. It's because I actually spent about 4,000 hours sifting through the data that nobody else will sift through, weighing it out, balancing it out, and saying, this is where I stand on the issue. I don't just come out and say, this is where I stand because it's in my gut. Or I don't say, I stand on this issue because the New York Times reported it this way. I say, I stand on this issue because of A, B, C, D, E, F, D, things that I have assessed, things that I have looked at. But you can find fault in that, and I'm not perfect. I can make a mistake. But to call me, to simplify me as a tool of Russia, as a Russian propagandist, is the greatest insult that there can be. But you know what? I'm used to getting insulted. So I'm tired. You know, I'm learning to just let it flow, flick off my back. I, I will say this about Iraq. There's not an interview that I run away from. Not a single one. And history is shown. Go back and read them. You don't have to, but do it. It's a challenge. Anybody, go back and read my interviews and find out where I was wrong. When I spoke to um, whoever the, the hairdo lady was at Alzheimer's. Uh, Paul Zahn going to be my friend. She was my friend. She thought she was going to be my friend. But Paul Zahn sat there, and when the time came, she she just interviewed me and attacked me and attacked me and attacked me. Hey, Paula, I'll take my interview. I'll put it up there right now. Every word I said turned out to be true. And every question you asked turned out to be a politicized question coming from above. You're not a journalist, Paula. You were an attack dog, sicked on me by uh, the establishment who was afraid of the truth that I was putting out there. And I will say the same thing today. What I'm saying about Russia. It's the truth. Yeah. It's the truth. Is it perfect? No. Nobody has perfect truth. But it's honest truth. It's sound analysis. And people who question me don't do it with good intent. I have no problem from a debate. You want to have a debate with me? Let's have a debate. We have a dialogue? Let's have it. Let's have a discussion. And if you can, through the process of the debate, show me where my analysis is wrong, where my facts might be incomplete, I will happily correct the record because I'm in the business of truth. I'm not in the business of defending my assessment my assessment either is reflective of the truth or isn't and if it's wrong it needs to be corrected i believe in that process how many people in the western media establishment believe in that process once they commit to a story how many of them go oh my god we got it wrong let's correct the record none of them do that yeah no i mean i think it's one of the reasons scott you're not a frequent guest on uh any of these mainstream media shows i think i uh, you know you would probably eat everybody for lunch, you know, a few times. And it, it's it's kind of sad because you mentioned about uh, bias, but also kind of like equal time. Like, is there anybody with an alternative viewpoint, everybody walking in lockstep? Um, I caught a couple of clips from MSNBC this morning, and it's, it's difficult to watch, you know, Morning Joe, Morning Mika, whatever you want to call it. And, um, you know, they're talking about how all of a sudden for, you know, how many years... Uh, we were supposed to believe where the virus came from, right? And now suddenly, you know, the CIA and different, you know, different agencies are coming forward and saying, you know, it could have been a bioweapon, could have been a, could, could, it might be a, it was maybe made in the lab, you know? And I remember Donald Trump saying, I think it was made in the lab and everybody just laughed at him. And all of a sudden, because, you know, China, you know, they're kind of, doing a little teamwork with Russia or they're they're going to form a whole coalition and the United States is going to be left behind. And we can't have that uh, in New York City and D.C. and all of these uh, places where most people don't relate to any of what they talk about, Scott. It's kind of funny. You watch the show and I'm thinking I'm a farmer in Mississippi. And how does this affect my life? It doesn't. But all I know is 
groceries cost a lot more than they used to, you know, and why is that? And can someone explain that to me? You know, we're running the printing presses so we can send $8 billion to Ukraine and people don't connect those dots because the media won't explain it to them that, that way. They just say, well, you know, for democracy, we have to do this for, I keep hearing democracy. What about here in the United States? What about our democracy? What about our citizens? And, and so it's kind of laughable, you know, all of the propaganda and there's no balance. There's no equal time, whether you liked the guy or not. I remember Rush Limbaugh would come on at noon and people would say, hey, you know, we need equal time in the afternoon after your show, Rush. You've had three hours to say whatever you want to say. And he would say, you know what? I am equal time. And if you looked at the media landscape and even since that moment, whether you liked Limbaugh or not, I didn't like everything he said and did. But I mean, he was a different point of view. You're a different point of view, Scott Ritter. And yet, you know, surprisingly, Scott, if I were a, and I know why, because like you mentioned, all this stuff is funded and financed by people who have, you know, real interests in seeing this war go on forever. And so that's why you're not going to be invited on. Thank goodness you come on shows like this. You're on YouTube. Um, I wanted to mention now, you did a speech or, or you did the speech you would have given at the Rage Against the War Machine rally. Where can you find that speech? Uh, if you go to skyraderextra.com, which is my, um, my website, um, that speech will be up there in my uh, sub stack. All right. So I just wanted and to alert. Just so everybody knows, it's free. Uh, even though I, I call it a sub stack, I don't hide anything behind a paywall. Um, if you felt inclined to uh, support, feel free. We would love the support. But I, uh, when I started this whole um, adventure, um, I, I did it because I believe it's important to um, to provide alternative sources of information, alternative sources of view. Um, and I, you can't provide that if you hide it behind a paywall. I don't condemn those who do it. That's a business decision that they made. And uh, I wish them the greatest success. Um, and it's probably, I, I could probably have greater uh, financial success if I did hide it behind the paywall. But uh, the, the, the purpose of this journey at this point in time is not to uh, succeed financially. It's to get information out to people who um, are desirous of that information. So uh, it's there on the, on the, on, on, on the sub stack. Um, you can get it for free. Um, yep. But again, mm -hmm. if you want to help me continue to show up on shows like Dave's, um, you, you got to... You got to help me buy the time uh, because time is money. Uh, you got to pay a mortgage. You got to pay the bills. And um, when I do stuff like this and, you know, you're the uh, one, two, you're the third one I've done today. And I've got three more after this, um, wow. which means I'm not writing. And if I'm not writing, I'm not making money. And um, so if people want, want this to occur, you know, just help out if you can. If you can't, great, because I'm here for those who can't. I'm here for everybody because it's a process. It's not about me. It's about you. It's about the audience. And uh, the fact that you're watching says you think there might be something useful in this interaction that we're having right now that helps you learn more, form your own positions. Um, so that's why I'm, I'm, I'm glad to do it. And I'm grateful for you to give me the opportunity to do it. But time ain't free. <laughs> I hear you. And, well, you've got a book, too. If people want to purchase that book, you could see it over one of my shoulders here. And I think yep. you've got a larger uh, placard behind you of the book, which, again, I've plugged here on the show. Maybe I'll throw a link in the uh, description box. People can order it off of Amazon pretty easily. And they're shipping it now, Scott, in the early days, I think. Uh, no, they, 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 finally, they finally got um, – I'll, I'll tell you, I mean, look, we're in a sort of a free flow uh, YouTube thing, so we're not structured too much. And you've encouraged me to go off on uh, tangents, tangents in the past, so I will do so again. Um, I love Clarity Press. Yeah. Uh, when when I came out of prison, uh, no no publisher would touch me, none. Uh, but I had things to say, um, and uh, Clarity Press um, helped me write a uh, helped publish a, a great book um, on um, a deal breaker on uh, Donald Trump and uh, the the end of the Iraq nuclear deal. If you guys want to know why we're out of the nuclear deal and how that happened, Deal Breaker is the book. Yeah. They then helped me uh, put out a, a great book called Scorpion King, which is a history of America's nuclear weapons programs from FDR to Donald Trump. Um, I, everybody who's read it says it's the single best volume on this subject out there. And I agree with them. Um, it was written to be that. Uh, I'm not bragging. It's just 
there yeah. there was a need for this book and it, there it is and clarity press helped bring it out but the numbers of both those books weren't um weren't impressive <laughs> it doesn't matter that you write a good book um yeah you got to sell a book and when i came up with the uh, disarm at the time of perestroika they um clarity press was a little bit gun shy they're like we like the book but we don't think it's going to resonate we don't think that people are going to you know I mean, it's sort of like old history, 30-year-old arms control history and all that. And I said, oh, no, I think it'll do okay. So their initial press uh, printing was, I think, 500 copies. Well, those 500 copies had sold out before they even got off the press. Nice. Uh, but then when you, when you do printing, understand that printer is competing with other books. So you get your time on print and you say 500 and you sell it out. Now you have to go back and get time, but you got to get in a queue. Because there's other books being printed on this printer. And so you get in the queue, but now how much do we commit to in the queue? And by, so they commit to 500, but by the time it comes back down, you're already 2,000 in the deficit because it's selling, but you can't ship. And the problem with can't shipping is when people don't get the book, sometimes they cancel the order and it, it creates sort of this negative vibe. They're now catching up and I think they're finally starting to print the books and numbers. And I'll tell you what, this book isn't going to go away. Um, it's getting published in Russia. Uh, in the Russian language um, by a major Russian publisher and there will be a book tour and I'm going to go over to Russia and I'm going to um, take the message of this book, which is a message of hope, message of history, uh, talk about how we once were able to overcome every obstacle possible to achieve meaningful arms control and the processes involved, which talked about human to human contact, breaking down walls of distrust, overcoming Russophobia. If you don't see a pattern, Right. Between right. Right. And then and today, then you're blind. And the idea yeah. is to take this message to the Russian people and capture their response. And then I'm going to come back and I'm going to tour the United States and show the American people how this message resonated with the Russians and get the American people to hopefully buy in at least. And so this book is going to be around for some time now. This book anchors my ultimate objective is putting a million people in Central Park on June 22nd. Uh, 2024, um, to repeat uh, what happened on June 12, 1982, when a million people went to Central Park in support of arms control. And guess what? Five years later, we got the INF treated to save the world. Yeah. You know, right now the world's in trouble. Russia's just suspended participation in the New START Treaty. There is no arms control. There is no new treaty vehicle. And if we don't get people elected to office that believe in arms control, we're all going to die. And I'm not just making this up, guys. We're all going to die. And so. How do we do that? Well, I'm going to do it by using this book as a vehicle to inform, educate, and motivate enough people to come to Central Park and maybe some other venues and show their support for arms control and to make arms control a politically viable issue for the 2024 election. I mean, I don't know how it's done, but maybe there's a way people can sign a statement that says, if you're a candidate and you're not committing right now that you're going to make arms control your highest priority because it's the only thing that can save our lives. If you're not committed, you can't get our vote. Nor to, I'm not telling you how to vote, but I am going to say that you can't vote for anybody who won't sign this paper, who won't sign this statement. Yeah. So you can have a, if a Republican and a Democrat both sign it, then you vote the way you want to vote. If neither sign it, there's an independent candidate out there who will sign it, and you vote for the independent candidate. Yeah. But you yeah. make sure it is the litmus test because it's not controversial, guys. We're talking about saving your grandchildren's lives, saving your children's lives, saving your own life. It's not like I'm asking you to engage on a Second Amendment debate or a right to life debate. This is the ultimate right to life debate. This is we all have a right to live and our government doesn't have a right to engage in a policy of nuclear arms race encouragement that will manifest itself in a nuclear apocalypse that kills everybody. So this book is the cornerstone, the keystone, the foundation of that effort. If you want to get ahead of the game, buy the book now, read it, and then help us. Help us save the world. Well, on that note, pretty appropriate way to wrap things up. Scott Ritter, thank you so much again for being here, sir. Um, best of luck in the days ahead. I know you got a lot on your plate as always, and uh, we'll see you real soon, hopefully. All right. Well, thank you very much. Scott Ritter, who probably needs no introduction. For my part, I would love to say that it is a great honor for me that we can talk today 
because you are doing a great job in exposing the lies that the propaganda of NATO countries serve us. I have a lot of questions for you, long and short. I hope you will have time to answer all my questions and questions for my viewers. I will start with some of my long questions, but don't worry, later questions will be shorter. Are you ready? I am ready. Thank you for having me. Okay, so my first question has to do with Joe Biden's visit to Kyiv a few days ago. It was an occasion for various funny theatrical gestures, such as loud alarm sirens, warning of bombing even. Do the Americans had previously informed Russia about everything and there was no bombing? And the emergency sirens were meant to show Biden as a great hero. Biden told Zelensky that U.S. will always help Ukraine. We, rem we remember from the past a similar theater in relation to the puppets of South Vietnam and to collaborationist government in Afghanistan. We also remember how the Americans fled Saigon in Panning and how in 2020 they fled Kabul in front of the eyes of the whole world. So my question is as follows. Will the Americans betray the Kyiv puppet government? And if so, when? Well, we, we already are betraying um, the Kyiv government. We're already betraying the people of Ukraine. I mean, one only has to take a look at the fact that, first of all, this was a war that not only could have been avoided, but should have been avoided. Um, there, there was no reason to fight this war. It's not in Ukraine's interests. It's not in... Uh, Zelensky's interests. It's definitely not in the Ukrainian people's interests. Uh, you know, depending on whose math you use, um, you know, 300,000, uh, you know, dead Ukrainian soldiers, uh, thousands of dead Ukrainian civilians, tens of millions of Ukrainian civilians displaced, trillions of dollars of uh, damage to Ukrainian infrastructure, uh, the uh, irreversible loss of up to 20% of uh, Ukrainian territory. Uh, that number could go higher if this conflict goes on. Um, under in, in whose universe does this constitute America helping Ukraine? Ukraine has lost. Ukraine is losing, and Ukraine will lose more. Um, so we've already betrayed Ukraine. We're going to betray them more because um, they're under the impression that uh, we're in it to win. <laughs> we're not in it to win. We're in it to play a political game. Um, you know to to manifest this notion that the United States and NATO is somehow going to bring about the collapse of Russia, the end of the Putin era, the removal of Putin from power. You're talking about the defeat of Russia. And as um, I think Dmitry Medvedev, a former uh, Russian prime minister, president, current deputy, uh, head of the uh, National Security Council has said, um, no nuclear power nation has ever been defeated before in a peer-on-peer -peer battle. So people need to understand that when you speak of the defeat of Russia, you're talking about the end of the world. You're literally saying, we want to commit suicide. We collectively want to die. Um, Poland, if you're listening, do you really want to die? Because any poll out there says, no, we're in with NATO. We're with the United States. We want to defeat Russia. What you're saying is you want to die because Russia won't be defeated by you. It just isn't going to happen. Um, not only is it never going to happen because Russia would use nuclear weapons to prevent it, it won't happen because you can't beat Russia. Plain up, straight up, stand up fact. America can't beat them. Ukrainians won't beat them. NATO won't beat them. Nobody will beat Russia. That doesn't mean that Russia wants to beat you. But Russia's not going to be defeated by you. Um, and so we've already betrayed them because we're not in it to win. We're in it to play a game. We're in it to you know, achieve some sort of strategic advantage over Russia. Um, some people suggest that we're in it to uh, weaken the European Union itself. I mean, logically, it wouldn't make sense because we claim to be friends with the European Union. But when you blow up a critical piece of infrastructure, as the United States did, come on, guys, you know we did it, um, and and you destroy the economies of your so-called allies, What what's the purpose? Uh, Russia's not getting weaker. Russia's getting stronger. Their economy's doing okay. Despite all the sanctions that have been thrown at it, despite the attempts to shut down Russia's energy sectors, Russia's economy's doing fine. Frank, what, 2.2% last year, going to grow this year. Uh, budget surplus, imagine that. A nation at war with all these sanctions on it running a budget surplus. 
your plans aren't working europe uh, your garden is a jungle um so no uh, we've already abandoned ukraine and, and, and the proof is in the pudding i mean biden goes on this covert mission to, to kiev and uh tells the Zelensky that uh, we're there we're for you we're going to give you what you need but as soon as biden leaves and finishes with his posturing diplomats come in behind him and say you know it, america's not a bottomless well um the wells run dry we don't have anything else left to give you we're it's over you got to start looking for peace we already abandoned them it's over uh, the you know nobody wants to admit it because there's political ramifications imagine the polish president coming out telling the Polish people right now hey everything i was telling you about in the last year or so wrong we lost all over <laughs> goodbye uh, how long do you think he'd be politically popular so every european po politician right now is running for cover they're desperate to find some sort of political cover and they're praying that putin gives it to them imagine that waiting for putin to help you out politically from the problems that you've caused because you were attacking Putin. It, it makes no sense.